Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Pull up Donna Shalala's LinkedIn profile and you'll have a seizure. Secretary of Health and Human Services under President Clinton for all eight years. President of the University of Miami where she raised $3 billion over 12 years. Head of the Clinton Foundation. She did a Peace Corps tour of duty in Iran in the early 60s. And now, in 2018, if she gets the votes, U.S. Congresswoman from Miami. She's ours for the hour, so do stay with us. Full disclosure is made possible by the support of our friends at Elwood Thompson's, the best market in Virginia, hands down, at the corner of Elwood and Thompson Streets, hence the name, and at elwoodthompsons.com. You'll see me there for Indian Wednesdays, for the Beat Cafe, which has new flatbreads, for the unbelievable wine bar scene. Do check them out, elwoodthompsons.com, and at the corner of Elwood and Thompson Streets, atop Carytown. And by Health Warrior Superfoods. Help us inspire girls to be strong, smart, and bold. Health Warrior and Just Bobby have created the world's most beautiful bar, a dragon fruit chia bar, exclusively for Girls Incorporated. 100% of profits from sales of the bar will go to Girls Incorporated. Free shipping over $45 every day at healthwarrior.com. Hassle-free returns. Join our rewards program. And you know me. I love the mango chia bar and the apple cinnamon chia bar, and there's so much going on there. Do check them out. You could find them at Elwoods. You could find them at Wegmans and just about every store. You see them in Target and at Whole Foods, Health Warrior Superfoods. I'm here in Coconut Grove with Dr. Donna Shalala, who is running for the 27th District congressional seat here in Miami. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm great. <laughs> and we exchanged a couple of words in Farsi, oddly enough. I mean, in your illustrious long, long, long resume, you did do that tour. You founded, what, an agribusiness school in Iran in the early 60s? We did. Um, it was actually an agricultural college. We called it the Harvard of Southern Iran, um, a group of Peace Corps volunteers, including one of your former professors. That's Jerry how Clinton. I found out about it. Yes, my Persian professor at Princeton in the early uh, 90s was, was so proud of you when you got tapped to run HHS under Clinton and said, I remember her as a Peace Corps Nick. Exactly. Um, I had a wonderful time in Iran. Um, Iran has changed, obviously, over the years, particularly the leadership, but um, it was a wonderful experience. We lived in a mud village. Uh, we built an agricultural college. We taught English. Uh, Jerry and I both uh, uh, taught English uh, to the students. I coached the soccer team, would you believe? <laughs> Uh, but um, we learned a lot, I think, about poverty, about living in another country, um, about people who cared about their kids and cared about their kids' futures. It made me a world citizen, a citizen of the world, just having that experience and spending time in the Middle East. And I, of course, um, came from a Lebanese background. In fact, um, Jerry used to love this story of when I arrived, I had this letter from my grandmother. My grandmother was the only one that supported me going into the Peace Corps. Um, she was a great Lebanese grandmother, and she gave me the letter, and she said, give it to the head man of the village. So when we arrived, uh, Jerry said, where's the letter? So we walked over, and we gave it to the head man. He started laughing, because here's what the letter said. This is in to do, introduce Donna Shalala, the daughter of a great sheikh in Cleveland, Ohio, Please put her under your protection. <laughs> I mean, it was a paternalistic society, but much more so when the Chador was restored during the Islamic Revolution. And a lot of the, the key feminist figures were, were either you know, expelled or unfortunately executed. Uh, exactly. And I knew a number of them while I was in Iran. And of course, while women wore Chadors in the bazaars and uh, rarely in the villages. 
I mean, I look at your resume and everything you've done since emanating from Ohio in your childhood, was it? Yes. Um, Wisconsin was a big part of your life. And if you were not running for Congress, if I didn't know anything else, I mean, one, you know I'm a huge Hurricanes fan. So I've been, ever since a kid growing up in Miami, they took me to that game where they were up 31 to 3. It was the first game in the United States, and Frank Reich came and beat them. I was sobbing on the way home from the Orange Bowl, and it's been my favorite You know, love it or hate it, but I would complain to you that it's been 15 or 16 years since we won a national championship. When are we going to get to the final four of the basketball thing? Even though you're not the head of University of Miami anymore, you still teach. But put that aside, I'd also buttonhole you about Wisconsin. I know this is a sharp turn from Iran, but you know Wisconsin institutionally. Uh, You know that place. How in the world, to the extent you're aspiring to be a politician now, how in the world did Donald Trump win Wisconsin in 2016? Well, it was turnout. It was the Democrats did not turn out in the kinds of numbers that they've turned out before, particularly in Dane County, where the university is located. Um, And frankly, if you read what really happened, people were unhappy in rural areas um, and in small towns in Wisconsin. They turned out in very large numbers. Wherever you went in the state, you saw Trump signs. Hillary did not spend a lot of time there, but... It was the beginning of a wave of uh, the Democrats losing working-class people, which they had always had in a place like Wisconsin. Wisconsin is a middle-class, working-class state, very proud uh, of its record on a whole number of issues. And Donald Trump captured uh, what people were unhappy about. I cannot for the life of me understand it as a business journalist and as a person. I've been in, I was in Manhattan for 10 years. He's always that Upper East Side, you know, property developer and the garish, you know, reality show and Trump stakes and Trump airplanes. And they say he's the first Florida man president because he's always here at Mar-a-Lago. How does that appeal to the working class voter in Wisconsin? It's what he says and it's his personality. Uh, But what he says in particular, because it, he, there People are not doing as well as they think they should be doing. And they're worried about their kids. They're worried about student debt, for example. And they're worried about opportunities themselves. And as manufacturing has left, as coal mining has declined uh, in this country, we have not invested enough in helping people make the transition. And um, Donald Trump spoke to people's fears more than anything else. Um, and and the kind of hate-mongering he did about immigrants, which is just deplorable from my point of view, uh, just captured uh, the imagination of a whole group of people that weren't feeling very good about where they were in our society. Mm. The party, the Democratic Party, after Bill Clinton didn't capture that group again. Um, It was Bill Clinton that reflected, that grew up in that kind of, uh, uh, in that kind of era, in that kind, those neighborhoods. And he understood uh, working folks, people that live from paycheck to paycheck. It's the kind of neighborhood I grew up in. I actually went to a technical high school. And uh, I have, and my cousins work in nursing homes and uh, basically, are working class uh, and middle class uh, folks. And other than loyalty to me, they would have voted for Trump. I mean, it's a very difficult question to ask because you've been friends with the Clintons for so long. You were head of the foundation. You knew them since, what, before they got married? 
I knew them before they got married. I've known them for a very long time. Was she, with the high negatives going in, and I'm not going to dwell on, on 2016 more than I have to, would a person like a Joe Biden, a lunch pail Joe Biden, have won Wisconsin, has, have won Pennsylvania? I don't know. Uh, you don't know that because there was a wave that came in and overwhelmed the Democratic Party uh, in general, while there were some Democrats that won. Um, Hillary won this district that I'm running in. Massively, by, by 20 points. By 20 points. So, um, and it is a district of, that has a high Hispanic population. It's a district um, that has a lot of working class people in it. It has some wealth. There's no question about that. Uh, but it's a district concerned about the environment. And sure. there's just no way... Um, they would have voted uh, for Trump. Sea level rise is a huge it's issue a huge yeah. um, in this uh, in this district. Uh, so it's, there's no way of predicting whether it was just not a Democrat's year. You can point to tactical mistakes. The textbooks, the new books, all come out, and and she herself admits uh, some mistakes. But who knows? Politics can turn on a dime. She was clearly the most qualified candidate, but he spoke to something inside of people that brought out the voters, passionately brought out the voters. And that's what you need to do. And here's the paradox. Again, I'm talking to you institutionally, almost straddling the fence between professor and now politician, is you had what appeared to be an untouchable at the top of the party in Barack Obama, but he sustained such huge losses in the midterms, such huge losses in the state houses, the governor's mansions. It seems like the party was eroded from underneath him. And now, after eight years of, of uh, Barack Obama and the GOP, what, taking 1,100 seats on across the map, I have to ask you this going into this race. Who is the torchbearer for the Democratic Party? Who is who is the champion, the, the I don't know, the standard bearer? You know, it's... Um, is it Bernie Sanders? No. He's not even a Democrat? No, it's a Democrat. There's no question about it. But we have a new generation of people um, and, uh, and, and new faces coming out of governor's uh, uh, chairs are, around the country. And you can look at a Mitch Landrew, uh, the mayor of New Orleans, who is a who is a young Southern, uh, attractive um, uh, candidate of the future. No questions. You can look at Kamala Harris, the new senator from California. Uh, my old friend Terry McAuliffe, uh, who's just finished his tour as governor of Virginia. Do you think he's going to run for president? I think everybody's going to run for president. I just <laughs> I just can't predict who's going to run and who's not going sure. to run. But I think that there are a lot of candidates out there that are very interested, including Joe Biden. No question about it. Including Bernie Sanders. Who knows? We may see the rise of Bernie Sanders again. The most important thing is for the Democrats to emerge from the presidential primary with a with a single message a serious message of how much damage has been done and what their ideas for the future are. We can't run on just the negatives. We cannot run an election on just beating up Donald Trump and calling for his um, for uh, for him to be indicted um, or impeached. We've got to say what our ideas are for the future. Good jobs, um, saving the environment. Uh, down here, we're very as we are across the country, concerned about guns, about assault weapons, about too many guns in our communities, about kids feeling unsafe uh, when they go to school. 
communities feeling unsafe. It's not just it's just not just the students at Parkland uh, who are articulating this, but youngsters are being killed every day in our communities. Uh, and we have to worry about the safety of our streets, of our communities, and we have to speak to that and speak to that with ideas. Um, but certainly down here in South Florida, um, we have uh, a sea level rise issue that we're all dealing with. And I want to get to that. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to uh, Dr. Donna Shalala. I don't know, say Secretary Donna Shalala, President Donna Shalala. If she has her druthers, she'll be Congresswoman Donna Shalala in the 2018 election. She is probably the front runner, I would say, uh, uh, to win this race. Um, you far acts out, 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 I mean, raised your opponents in the crowded Democratic field. I don't know who the presumptive Republican candidate is, and I doubt that that candidate would have Trump stumping for him or for her. We don't know who the, they're going to have a primary on the Republican side as well. Right now, I am simply focused on the Democratic primary. And um, there are a lot of candidates because it's an open seat. It is a seat that Democrats can flip. Yeah, and that's what we talk about. I mean, you are friends with Ileana Ross Layton and the longtime holder of that seat. There seems to be this comedy here in Miami. I look at at least on social media, I see you, Ileana Ross Layton, and they're calling her woke Ileana now that she decided not to run for this seat. She could be antagonistic toward the Trump administration or people like Pruitt. There's Ana Navarro, the Republican strategist who's outspoken in her kind of disdain for this administration. Tell me about your district and the changing dynamics of the 27th. This was a redistricted area, right? It was a redistricted. But I look at it on the map and it's plumb kind of in the in the low-lying tidal zone and we're going to get into sea level rise. But I want to I want to know about the the neighborhoods and subdivisions that are covered by this. We're doing this interview in Coconut Grove where I wrote a book about the the you know the storied Mutiny Hotel which is a stone's throw from here. And this is a a place right in front of Biscayne Bay, but as you go up and down the coast here a number of people are worried about flood insurance. They're worried about more hurricane events. They're worried about um, king tide and water gurgling up well inland into your district and sea level rise having never been much of a concern for them. Exactly. And and those environmental issues are issues that concern the people of uh, that live along uh, the coastal areas uh, in this country as well. Uh, they should be concerned. There's no question about it. Um, and there are some things we can do about. There are some adaptive things that we can do. At the end of the year, uh, at the end of the day, we need international and national leadership, because climate change uh, requires every country in the world to step up. The fact that the president um, wants to pull out or has announced he's going to pull out of the Paris Accords is outrageous. It is a compromise that was reached with every country in the world. Why would we be the outliers? Um, why would we not believe in science? And I think one of the most scary things about this administration, they don't believe in science. You will not find climate deniers here in Miami or in South Florida. But there is an element of denial, um, Madam Secretary, if you will. Um, if I, I, I don't recognize this skyline anymore. It's crazy. You have these corridors of oligarchy. I mean, they call Sunny Isles Little Moscow now. People just keep building and building and building and building. And if you can explain for us flood insurance, it's not a given. And I'm also not a geologist, but the porous aquifer here, I mean, people seem to think sea level rise is the ocean, the Atlantic tipping over and inundating Florida. I mean, that might be a concern for 50, 60 years. Hence, it's more that incremental increases, even on days when 
it doesn't rain, end up coming through the aquifer and flooding neighborhoods that have nothing to do with the ocean. I mean, they could be two miles inshore. So how does flood insurance work with that? How are people still building in a frenzied way into that? Explain that well, in you're terms right, of your district. You're right that uh, Miami um, is building and building and South Florida is building and building. There's no question about it. Uh, that's creating two problems. One is uh, related to the flooding and our inability. Well, Miami Beach has instituted a, a pumping system yeah. to try to keep the water uh, out. And it's, it's had some effect, but we need a lot more. There are adaptations that we can do, whether we can stop the building process. That involves local governments, zoning, um, our decision about how much planning we need to do. This also creates a traffic problem. Terrible. We do not have the kind of public transportation system, particularly hard rail, but uh, a kind of systematic strategy for uh, traffic that many cities have already adopted. And we're in the process. We're a very young place. Um, we're only about probably 100 years of history. About 115 years of history. So. Um, we've got to act, start acting like a very mature place. And, and one of the things I hope to bring is a level of maturity pulling together the stakeholders um, to try to make sure we deal with the issues and get appropriate resources out of the federal government. We pay the taxes, goes up to Washington. We've got to get them back for precisely what we need to deal but with. But explain flood insurance to me. I mean, that's like getting to brass tacks a here and now. It's not in the abstract. If FEMA, which flood insurance is not privately issued, right? That's no, government backstop. It's, government it's kind backed. of like Fannie and Freddie, and it's really in the red. It's in the red, and it's expensive um, uh, for anyone that uh, that wants to get flood insurance. Most of us can't afford to buy flood insurance because it's so expensive. But uh, you know, we have no way without government backing flood insurance. The private sector will not provide it. So the, the controversy, and I imagine your constituents, again, look at the map of the, the 27th. I encourage the listeners to do this. This is low-lying coastal area. Um, that could create a property catastrophe if new policies aren't insurance. I mean, the, the, the skyline is just dominated by new buildings. Yes. People keep building inland. And you see, uh, you, you hinted at what Miami Beach is doing with pumping. There are days in King Tide where some people on Alton Road have to show up with plastic bags to wear around their sneakers. Um, mm -hmm. uh, this might be a, a, an indication, like a kind of a sneak preview of what the future holds. If we have to spend all of these tens of billions of dollars on new hydrology projects and pumping, and it takes for granted the fact that the population has grown here and, and we don't have a mass transit system. Uh, this is the kind of thing that keeps me up at night. My parents live down here. Well, it keeps me up at, at night too. And But there are things that we can do. There's no question about it. But it requires a major federal investment working with state government and local governments uh, to deal with many of these aspects. Are we going to keep building in Miami? We're running out of space to keep building. There's no question about that. What we do with existing buildings, what kind of retrofitting we do, what kind of commitments we're willing to make, um, and what kind of pressure we're prepared to put on our national government um, is, is extremely important. Look, I own an apartment down on Miami Beach that's right on the water. Um, I really could not get hurricane and flood insurance. I mean, there's just no question that I couldn't get that kind of uh, uh, coverage. Um, I just finished sitting on a panel with um, Tom Steyer and, 
and Mike Bloomberg and, and Hank Paulson, a group of us looking at the business case for the environment, for environmental change, called Risky Business. It's an interesting uh, report in which we're making the case to the business community, particularly to the insurance community, that they've got to pay attention, that we have to change our economic incentives if we're going to protect our environment in the future, and particularly looking at issues like sea level rise and and the changing climate, which is going to affect human health, are you for Are you convinced with a, a lot of people out there, again, getting to brass tacks, that it's too late to intervene, um, you know, at, at, the, at the sub-coastal level, places like New Orleans, Florida, low-lying South Carolina, that you really have to, at this point, deal with flood walls and pumps and, and, and have these really stark conversations? I'm convinced that we've got to make major investments in hardware and software to be able to manage um, our way um, in the years ahead. There's no question about it. But we can't give up on this just because uh, just because anyone says there's no chance that we can manage our way through. We're Americans. We have the best science and the best technology in the world, and we've just got to figure it out and put in the resources that are absolutely necessary. You know, I've got some ideas on my website. I've always wanted to be a .com, so... So people go to DonnaShalela.com, and um, I'll throw out uh, some of my ideas. For for South Florida, though, it's the environment, it's guns, uh, it's immigration, which is one of the great challenges, uh, particularly with this administration in particular. We've got lots of issues. Uh, it's jobs and better jobs, and not just creating new jobs, but making existing jobs better. And I have to ask you about this district, the 27th. I'm thinking, you know, the predecessor district was what Ileana ross Layton was for a long time running, the 18th district, right, between 1989 and 2013, since she's been atop the uh, 27th district, which, we're, which you're vying for. Prior to her, I remember Claude Pepper, these things don't turn over very often. This kind of plum seat in a district, a redistricted area that Obama won pretty handily in 2012, Hillary Clinton won in a kind of a cakewalk in, in 2020. What has changed demographically? Because the knee jerk has always been that the exile community here was, uh, the Cuban exile community was determinedly GOP. Um, you know, Al Gore had his troubles with it in, in 2000. Yeah, it's a much more mixed district, not because um, not because the the ethnic mix has changed as much, but new generations of young people, third, second, and third generations of young Cubans, um, tend to be more Democratic uh, than Republican. But even the Republicans are moderate Republicans. Look at Ileana Rosley; she was more of a moderate Republican. She was conservative. A conservative moving to the left. Was she though? She felt like a rubber stamp on George W. Bush. I yes, mean, maybe but Trump rubs her the wrong way. Uh, Trump more than rubs her uh, the long way, wrong way. But she also has been for immigration reform for a very long time. So I don't want to defend, uh, just sit here and defend Ileana. But she won with Democratic votes. That's the way she kept her district. She could have won it again, but she would need Democratic votes uh, to win. And likewise, you've you've reached across the aisle. You're not very shrill in attacking the GOP party. You don't feel the need to be a kind of a hatchet woman for that. You've you've given to GOP candidates at a fraction of what you've given to Democratic candidates. Yeah, um, you know, those candidates were uh, local. As you know, most of our representatives here are Republicans. And as part of my job at the University of Miami, I've given some money 
much less than I've given to uh, Democratic candidates. I've given a quarter of a million dollars to Democratic candidates over the last decade. Um, and a smidgen to Republican uh, candidates. I have reached across the aisle, but we did it in the Clinton administration on issues that concern the American people. Children's health insurance, a combination of Senator Orrin Hatch and Senator Ted Kennedy, supported by all of us. So we, we, cut, we cut deals in Congress. We learned how to work with each other to pass important legislation. Perhaps one of the most important was doubling the the budget of the National Institutes of Health, which will have an impact on all of our communities for centuries to come because of the scientific breakthroughs. So there are some issues where you can reach across the aisle. I had to do the same thing in Wisconsin, where I had Republican legislators, where we had to find a compromise somewhere. In and the you're area. still friends with Tommy Thompson. I am, but but I'm a lifelong Democrat, um, a very strong Democrat. And, but there's no reason why Democrats on certain issues can't reach across the aisle, and um, uh, particularly on children's issues, on women's issues, um, and on issues that concern veterans, for example. I, I worked with Senator Bob Dole at the request of President Bush to make some very good recommendations for wounded warriors, young people that were coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan with terrible wounds. Um, and I'm always going to be willing to do that on things that help um, uh, the American people. If we can get good legislation, if it requires that we reach across the aisle, I'll be there. Now, your, your, your passion also in, in this transition as Dr. Shalala has been health care. And I cannot interview you in South Florida without asking you about, or ask interview you anywhere else, asking you about the opioid epidemic. We are within a stone's throw here of all these pill mills and... Um, you know, Medicaid fraud clinics and, and everywhere else where you can get easy access to these incredibly potent, incredibly widespread drugs that were not nearly as readily available five or 10 years ago. I don't even know how to get my hands around this. And moreover, I don't get the sense from this administration, whoever the Surgeon General is, I mean, Gottlieb at the FDA has talked about it. Alex Azar, uh, what at Health and Human Services has spoken about the need for, uh, you know, tougher enforcement. How did this happen? And we seem to be one of the ground zeros of this, at least in terms of supply. You know, it's really fascinating. We created this epidemic. The scientific, the medical community created it. They were trying to offset and help people who were um, under terrible pain. And in the process, they set a standard of care in which there was a heavy use of opiates. So physicians, licensed physicians... Um, not anticipating that they were setting people up for addiction for the rest of their lives, uh, started prescribing too many pills to alleviate people's pain. That spun out of control. And we still have doctors that are, uh, that are uh, approving too many opiates, but it's, we've clamped down a bit on it. There's no question about it. Once we recognize that the unintended consequences of doing something good, helping people to alleviate, the, alleviate their pain, we started to clamp down. By we, I mean the medical community, the standards that the government had in terms of, and, and the consensus uh, process that docs go through on, on how they should prescribe uh, drugs. So it was man, it was created by the medical community trying to do a good thing, and it resulted in something awful. 
Is this an echo chamber of my ancestors in Persia, um, you know, smoking opium? And that epidemic, be. but you take a you take a kind of a synthetic distillation of it, yeah. and it's so powerful. The problem is, as we clamp down, people turn to heroin because fentanyl, heroin was cheaper. And fentanyl, which is making well, it. and fentanyl because it was cheaper, and because they could no longer get access. Florida started to clamp down on pain pills, on pain clinics, and um, and as we squeeze down, people move to heroin. Our best strategy now is prevention, to stop people in the first place. But almost all of the addicts began with prescriptions and then moved to uh, other drugs. It is a human tragedy. And, and once addicted, it takes a lifetime of working with people. It's not just, we'll get you treatment and then you're okay, you'll go get a job and you'll be fine. It is treatment for the rest of your life. It's some kind of a program for the rest of your life because of the impact and the, the changes that take place in your body and the craving. We've got to work with people for a very long period of time. We certainly can stop people from dying, but that doesn't mean that they won't in reality be dying for years uh, because we don't have the treatment protocols. We know what to do, but but... We don't have a healthcare system that can stick with them. We don't see it as a public health crisis. The president talks about it as a criminal justice issue. Not, we cannot throw people in jail and, and solve this problem. Or worse, if you look at Duterte in the Philippines. It's a public the, health crisis. But is it also a mental health crisis? I ask yes, people this. but when I say these, public health, I mean mental health. I do health. wonder, though, if it's, if maybe the, the misery, they talk about the, the statistically significant um, you know, deaths of misery among you know, middle yeah. and late-age white people who should not be, who should theoretically be living longer. I'm sure you've studied these and have scratched your head as well. Is this maybe another echo of the Great Recession or some of the PTSD? I know I'm taking you out field, but these are things I would ask you if I bumped into you in a Starbucks in Coconut Grove. Yeah, if you bumped into me with a People Starbucks. are in pain kind of emotionally, and this is something that lets well, you flee. Well, and remember that that's what Donald Trump c- captured. He captured deep unhappiness by large parts of the... Per- but, but we know a lot about mental health, and we know that it's not being properly treated. We know that mental health is an illness and ought to be treated the same way every other disease is, with long-term, it's a chronic illness, so it requires long-term care. It requires a series of experts. Even the VA can't hire enough psychologists and psychiatrists to deal with um, the, the mental health of veterans. So the kind of investment we need to make is at every stage uh, for mental health. And frankly, we've passed laws that make it uh, parity laws that make mental health be treated the same way that physical uh, health is, but it's not enough. And and every issue, uh, particularly opiate addiction, needs a combination of things. That the in the government early in my career, I was in the Carter administration. They nicknamed me Boom Boom because <laughs> I never uh, I never dealt with an issue just from one dimension. I never wanted to deal with an issue just from law enforcement or just from uh, physical health or just from mental health, you have to, on an issue like this, you have to work at every stage with every strategy you have because you're not sure that one strategy will work. Um, and we have to put our arms around people and give them every kind of help, but not assume that just sending them into treatment is the solution. 
So it's not just expanding Medicaid so people can get treatment. It's after treatment and what kind of a support system we put in place for people. And they may have to go back into treatment two or three times. Mm. And we've got, to, we've got to be able to live with that and to continue to work with people. These are human beings that are our cousins and our sisters and brothers and um, our children, and we cannot give up. But we've also got to prevent it. We did this, we did a huge prevention campaign on tobacco. One of the great achievements of the 20th century was reducing tobacco use among children. We did that in the administration, in the Clinton administration. That changed children's lives as they grew older uh, because they were no longer addicted to tobacco. Opiate addiction is worse. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Secretary Donna Shalala. Hopefully she's saying Congresswoman Donna Shalala. Um, she's running for Congress from Miami's 27th district in this year's election. We are talking about all manner of things as she's worn all manner of hats in her long career. Uh, I'd like to ask you to the extent you were on the board of United Healthcare. Yes. As recently as what? I see something from 2005. Yep. Um, but I'm I my wife and I stay up worried about insurance. For example, we bought our insurance plan on the exchange in Virginia, mm-hmm. and there was one, literally one insurer reluctantly willing to sell us a family plan. We have no pre-existing conditions. It was Cigna, and you get the impression that a lot of these guys are just holding their noses doing this. Maybe they're hoping for Obamacare to collapse under its own weight. Maybe they're also saying, well, we need more help for high-risk pools and um, you know, financial aid to kind of make the, the numbers equal out for us. What is your read, and how has your thinking evolved on uh, the potential for universal health care, which you're starting to hear whispers about increasingly? It's not taboo in the Democratic Party. Some people are saying Medicare for all. Yeah, it's not taboo in the Republican Party either. I heard Tommy Thompson say... Uh, I think we're going to get to single payer. So, well, as N tends toward infinity, if we leave the current system as is, will it will it collapse under its own weight? What will happen? Well, if we leave the current system as it is, it's going to become too expensive for everybody. That's the problem. Uh, for most Americans, it's the affordability. They sort of like their health insurance, but it's the affordability. I learned a lot. I spent six years, I think, on the United Healthcare Board. One of the things I was able to do was to bring in a $10 million grant for the poorest clinic uh, in Miami, um, the Jefferson Reeves Reeves Clinic uh, in Miami, a million dollars a year every year for 10 years to to improve primary health um, in our community. And I was very proud uh, to be able to do that. But um, the insurance companies are making money out of the fragmentation of the healthcare system. They're not losing that much money under Obamacare. But here's the problem. If you have one insurance company in your exchange that will take a family plan, that means that everybody else decided there wasn't enough of a market in which they could get the margins that justified them going into the area. So so the only way we can probably reduce healthcare costs if we live with the existing system, if we don't move, whether it's a Medicare for all or universal health care or single payer, is by taking the very expensive people and managing their care, the chronic, the 5% with chronic illnesses, and having some kind of a secondary market uh, to finance them differently. That will keep everybody else's premiums in a reasonable place, we hope, 
So people are thinking about those kinds of ideas, and there has been some bipartisan efforts to try to think about that. I got to ask you, but it, I it's still ask, a does, complex system. Does anybody actually love their health care plan? I, oh. When I look back at the Obamacare, the backlash and the way the Tea Party ran against yeah. it and everything, are people protecting plans that they love? Like I see, for you know, in, in car insurance, I see USAA policyholders pulling me aside at cocktail parties yeah. and raving about USA. I've never seen anybody rave about Anthem or Cigna or... So why are people protective of something that is kind of half Well, the polls show something uh, that's interesting. They love their doctors. They like their advanced practice nurses that they go to. Um, most people, remember, still the vast majority of people get their health care through their employer. So we're not talking about people that go on the exchanges. You're part of the single market that Obamacare was trying to deal with which is not a large portion of the number of people that have health insurance. People either get their health insurance from Medicare, from Medicaid, through their employers, from VA, from the military, from the Indian Health Service. That's probably more than half the market. There's no question about that. So uh, the rest of uh, the population, most of them get their health insurance through their employer. So you're talking to a fairly narrow group. They don't talk about who their insurer is. They talk about their experience with health care. So they're talking about their docs and their nurses and where they go why to get their health care. You've surely followed this stuff as a, as a, as a businesswoman, as a person who's been on, on corporate boards. Amazon and J.P. Morgan and Berkshire Hathaway are getting into this. Walmart. Because they think they can make money. Can they make money or can they can they staunch the losses that they feel, the kind of the, the outflow to administrative costs? You read all this stuff about the benefit No, they're managers. doing something else. If, if, you're, if you're at Walmart and you want to get into the healthcare business, you want people to walk into your stores. Why do you think that CVS and Walgreens have set up um, have, have set up these minute clinics with advanced practice nurses? It's the walk-in business. Everybody that walks in buys something else in the store. They're also trying to cut costs for their employees by trying to create a seamless system that we don't currently have because they think that they can control costs better, and they may well uh, be able to. The introduction of large businesses, frankly, they're going to find out what Donald Trump said. Healthcare is really complicated. Well, you have the richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, child of Cutler Ridge, right? Uh, Pinecrest here. I don't know if that's in your district. Uh, it is. The school. It is. But he's he's taking this on. Look, I, I know I'm taking you into a bit of esoteric territory, but how often do you get to talk to Donna Shalala after all? Um, I would like it. Look, I pay Amazon Prime a ton of money. I have a huge willingness to pay. They're probably going to deliver my groceries to me. I buy everything from them as a retail element. Um, they have a, a, a film studio. Why, in five or ten years, should I not be able to buy an insurance plan from them? If you, they can invite people from an enormous pool of subscribers across demographics, yeah. why is that any less powerful than a company buying It'll be interesting policy? whether they could do it across demographics, because every state has their own rules that controls uh, health care. So it'll be interesting to see how they put together... Um, a plan and whether they have high deductibles and other things. Let me say something about Medicare for All, because I've been interested in that for a very long time. I actually invented the phase-in of Medicare for All. We had a proposal at HHS at the end of the administration <clears throat> to take um, 
to take Medicare and um, to phase it in for people that were 55, from 55 to 65. That's a high-risk group. They didn't have good access to health care. This is before Obamacare. And we were going to put them into the Medicare program at a nominal cost that would not have a big impact, financial uh, negative impact on the Medicare program. And we actually had figured out how to pay for it uh, within the Medicare uh, program, and it would have started the phase in. Um, I still think it's a pretty neat idea because it's certain parts of the population. What Obamacare did was worry about people that didn't have access to large markets because they weren't they didn't have an employer that provided their health care. People like you. So they set up exchanges uh, to make that possible. I never thought they were going to get the subsidies right the first time. They couldn't make any technical corrections because of the this is too much detail, but because of the uh, the Republicans, we're not going to let them make any changes. Why in the was quote public option so taboo? People well, ran on that in the midterms because the insurance companies didn't want to compete against a public option because the Medicare's overhead is three percent. Insurance companies have twelve to fifteen percent in terms of. Uh, uh, overhead, um, so they couldn't compete against a public option. Incidentally, physicians we've had on this the show and, and people who I talked to who were howling, you know, bloody murder in 1993 and 94 with the, you know, Hillary Clinton's health care project and, and health care reinvention. Socialized medicine, I remember. From the time of Roosevelt... Right. The American Medical Association, they've started to change their minds as they but had But I find they're, they're increasingly resigned to uh, um, single payer. They You're are. hearing that more and they more. Are. It, whether we leave it to, to kind of wither on the vine or we take it on headlong. Oh, not, there's no question about it. The real question is whether the employers would like to move to single payer. You have to put together a coalition to get there. And um, I think employers have tried everything to try to keep down their health care costs uh, do I think we'll see something like a Medicare for all or a single payer in our lifetime? I actually do. I actually think that we're going to throw up our hands at some point um, with the fragmentation of the healthcare system. Um, and we're going to expand uh, the role. Government could do it for less money in terms of overhead. The compromises up until now has been to let the private sector deliver it. We do this, the government does the subsidies. Uh, but we need, the reason there's so much fraud in the system is because it's so much, so complex. Every time Medicare had a problem, someone would slap on another regulation. You can't just take off those regulations because you'll be back to a situation in which there's a lot of fraud in the system. But We've made it very complex. We've made it complex for the government to administer it. That's why the VA is such a simpler system. And by the way, privatizing the VA is not the answer. I believe that the previous uh, secretary, uh, Shulkin, was absolutely right. The complexity of the issues that veterans deal with cannot be dealt with effectively in the private sector in every part of the country. Hmm. So we need to protect our veterans' hospitals. We need to protect the services that we provide to, to these men and women who served our country. And I feel very strongly about that. But you look at the VA, it's, a, it's as much um, a single-payer system as you could have any place. Because you're actually, it's not even single-payer because you're not paying for it when you go in. 
Secretary Donatella, tell me how you feel at age 77. You had a health scare in 2015. Yeah. You have every reason to kind of retire. You raised all that money for UM. You took on, admittedly, what was a messy situation at the Clinton Foundation of, as, it, as it morphed and became so huge and, you know, the Bono, Ted-type caliber thing where everybody wants to be involved with it. You've deserved an easy retirement here. You said you have a pad in Miami Beach, right? You've had so many jobs. Why not just retire? Because my public service isn't over, because there are things to be done, because I see what's happening in Washington. We're going backwards as opposed to forward. We need to deal with these important issues, whether it's climate change or whether it's health care, and we shouldn't be going backwards, and I feel a responsibility to step up. In terms of my own health, I asked my doctors, and uh, they gave me all these tests and... and um, um, you know, it'd be a great ad for you, incidentally, if you guys want to, you know, kick in like a royalty. My doctor says Shalala. Ask your doctor if Shalala's right for you. No, just yeah. go ahead. Uh, uh, here's what my doctor said. They said the good news is um, you can uh, run for uh, Congress. You're very healthy. Uh, and I said, well, what's the bad news? The bad news is our consensus is you ought to run for president. Oh, gosh. Uh, they were adorable. <laughs> Tell me in the 10 minutes or so that we have left, if you if you win. I mean, your path now, between now and November, I also want to know if you think uh, the Dems are going to take back the House at the very least, if, if they can overcome the redistricting and gerrymandering to pull it off. And if you do win, what you're going to roll up your sleeves and do, um, you know, after the interregnum when you start in January. Here's what I've said to the people of South Florida. I'm going to hit the ground running. I'm going to be ready on day one. And, you know, in, in the DonnaShalala.com, I love being a dot-com, um, you know, I outline some of this. And I'm going to introduce legislation right away and try to build support within my own party and, if necessary, uh, across the aisle. On climate change, on traffic, on immigration, I will, I'll join with others. We've got to get a reasonable uh, immigration system, and that involves the DACA kids, obviously. Everybody cares. I know those young people. They deserve to stay in this country, to have a pathway to citizenship. We, we've got to have a fair immigration system. We also have to protect our borders. There's no question about that. But most people who ended up staying in this country did not sneak across the border. They, overstood, they overstayed their visas. And we've got to understand that. We keep focusing on the border when people are overstaying their visas, um, which means they, they come here on a visitor's visa and they stay. Uh, they come here on a student visa and they stay. We've got to capture, we've got more technology than anybody else in the world. We ought to be able to track people to make sure they don't overstay their visas. We've got to have a fair system. So people that are waiting in line for years from other countries, um, when they uh, when they want to come, when they're eligible to come, they actually get to come. Do you look at guns as a public health I crisis? I do. I do. I look at Vivek guns. Vivek Murthy, who's also here from this district, went to school with Jeff Bezos, yeah. who was the last Surgeon General. He ran into a lot of buzz in his confirmation because he did take on guns. Yeah, and there's no one in public health that's not going to take on guns. Um, look, I believe in the Second Amendment. I come from a family of hunters. There's no reason why military-style weapons ought to be sold in this country. They're not hunting we weapons. And I just met a person in a coffee shop here in Coconut Grove, and he said to me he had two assault weapons. If there was a buyback program and everybody was participating, he would 
uh, give up his assault weapons. He said it's the right thing to do. But here's what's important. There should not be a child in America that's afraid to go to school. There should not be a community in this country that's afraid to let their children out of the front yard. We've got to reduce the number of illegal guns that are, that are, are bought in this country surreptitiously, and, and we've got to get rid of military-style assault weapons, and we've got to join together to get this done. But we ought to think first about the safety of our communities, not just um, our high schools. The Parkland kids will tell you that they're just as concerned about a kid that lives in Liberty City here uh, or in Overtown or in any other community in our country, in Chicago, in Los Angeles, that we've got to make sure that young people feel safe and the people that live in our communities feel safe. We've got too many guns in this country, and we've got to see what we can do about reducing that number, and we can start with military-style assault weapons. Wasn't the assault weapons ban enacted by Ronald Reagan? No, it was enacted by Bill Clinton. But at the behest of Ronald Reagan's injured Uh, press secretary? Mrs. uh, Mrs. Reagan was a big advocate for the Brady Bill, Hmm. uh, which which was not the assault weapons ban, but actually uh, extended, made people sign up, and and we did research on them before we uh, allowed them to buy guns. The crime bill actually had an assault weapons ban. That was all during the Clinton administration. All of us fought uh, to make sure we did everything we could during that period. So we had 10 years of a ban on assault weapons, and um, and the Bush administration just let it lapse. What do you say to those who, who contend that if after Sandy Hook, the nation didn't join and, and recoil in unison, that there's just no hope ever for tragic. gun control? Tragic. Sandy Hook was tragic the fact that we didn't take advantage of it. But I think Americans are now fed up, and uh, we're ready to make changes. I've said to the young people, I know Parkland students that went to Marjorie Stone Douglas High School because they're students at the University of Miami, I've said to them, don't be patient. This is your time. This is the time in which we have an opportunity to make changes that will make generations safer in their schools and in their communities. Freestyle me. Tell me what's top of mind for you, what's being short-shrifted in the press, what you wish would get covered more. Well, um, my resume is too long to get covered. I'd love to talk about Kane's basketball, frankly. I'm shaking my fist at the screen like, you know, why don't we have a world-class Final Four team? Why wouldn't any star basketball player in high school want to go to the University of Miami? Well, let me tell you, because we have one of the great coaches in America. Jim Laranega is unbelievable as a coach, and we're recruiting very good basketball players, so wait until next year. And the same thing for the football program. But, but let's, talk about, uh, let's talk about what the future holds. What I can bring um, to the Congress and for our community is a lot of experience in the substance of the issues, but more importantly, in getting things done. Because I've been running complex organizations my whole career, I know how to get things done. I know how to talk to people. But more than anything else, I know how to listen to people. I've learned more from just sitting and listening to people, whether they're young people or whether they're seniors or whether they're in between, about what their hopes and dreams are. And in this country, we want our streets to be safe, we want our schools to be safe, and we want opportunities um, to get better jobs and to make our existing jobs better. 
and we want to deal with the immigration issues and with climate change, um, and in this community, with traffic. And you would think that traffic wasn't a federal issue. It is a federal issue. The resources are there. They send them to the states, and communities have to have the strategies to deal with their traffic issues. Too many people in South Florida sit in traffic for too long. And Trump isn't going to be campaigning down here. I mean, it's a, it is a paradoxical. Again, he, he's looked at largely as the first Florida man president. He's at Mar-a-Lago whenever he can be, <laughs> just, know. what, 50, 60 miles north of us. Uh, but they don't seem I to— I know Donald. I, I've known him for years, <laughs> From actually. where? How did you— how did New you York. Because I my at early Hunter career College. started— Yeah, at Hunter College. I was president of Hunter College. I also knew him when I was a professor at Columbia. So I knew him early in uh, in his career and in my career— he used to call me periodically with trying to buy a building that we owned or something. <laughs> Most recently, he tried to talk me into uh, having the Miss Universe contest at uh, at the university. But he regularly called me every time we had a coaching vac- vacancy. He'd send me over a suggestion, and I'd say, Donald, do you know this person? No, no, but some friend recommended them. So I've known him for a long time. I got to wonder, do you think in his heart of hearts he's apolitical? Can't imagine. I mean, he goes and gives a stump speech in West Virginia and, and supports the NRA carte blanche. Is that out of self-preservation or does he truly believe that? Oh, or does I, he have a relationship with Christ? I never quite understood it. I still see the, the you know, special episode Cosby show, Donald Trump, Upper East Side guy. And I, I still don't understand how he morphed into something else. He's purely political. And he's going back to what got him elected, which is a kind of nativism and jingoism that... Um, but he's really, he's bashing people. In this country, that may work for a, a period of time, but we're a nation of immigrants. We're, we're a generations of people that got along with different with people. We fought next to each other uh, to preserve democracy. At the end of the day, I have faith in people, the kind of faith he doesn't have, because he thinks that you build a nation by bashing certain groups. That's that's never been the American way. Donna Shalala, secretary, president of the University of Miami, doctor. You've worn all those hats, and now you're hoping to be U.S. congresswoman for the 27th district from Miami. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm so grateful. Thank you. Full disclosure, special thanks to Hannah Artman and Kyle Holston. Find us and love us on NPR One. It is a great app. And on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. Reminder, it's all about the you. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week.